Before we get started with everything, I wanted to make sure that you aren't missing out on all of the dastardly delights that we have to offer. Scary Stories Told in the Dark is but one of the many shows that you could be listening to. Be sure to tune in Wednesdays at 6 p.m. for the latest releases from Fear from the Heartland, hosted by Paul J. McSorley. Be sure also not to miss Horror Hill, Drew Blood's Dark Tales, and the eponymous Chilling Tales for Dark Nights podcast. You can find all of these on YouTube and the podcast platform of your choice, or you can get the ad-free versions by subscribing at the Chilling Tales for Dark Nights website. Thank you again, dear listeners, for staying as spooky as you do. <laughs> Good evening. I'm storyteller Otis Gyre. And I ain't your grandfather. From where I'm from, we don't do bedtime stories. And if that's what you were expecting, you're in the wrong place. If it's terrifying tales you're after, well then, I've got just the thing. Get comfortable, settle in, turn off the lights, if you dare. Your night is about to get a whole lot darker. <laughs> Who needs sleep anyway? <laughs> Good evening, you're listening to Scary Stories Told in the Dark. Welcome, dear listeners, to Season 12, Episode 11. I'm your host, Otis Jerry, and in this episode, I'll be performing two tales to terrify you, courtesy of author M. Grant Kellermeyer, or rather, in a change from our usual format, part one of these two tales. Tonight, we will hear stories of renovations gone wrong and of killer storms. You're listening to the standard edition of tonight's program, which contains the first part of one spine-tingling story. If you'd like to show your support and enjoy an extended version of this and other episodes with twice the terror, visit simplyscarypodcast.com and click Patrons in the upper menu to sign up today. Thank you for your support. Now it's time to take a walk together down the moonlit trail. So lock your doors, turn your lights down low, and settle in. The show's about to begin. <laughs> Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs projects done well. If you own a home, you know how much work it can take, whether it's everyday maintenance and repairs or making dream projects a reality. It can be hard just to know where to start, but now all you need to do is Angie that and find a skilled local pro who will deliver the quality and expertise you need. Angie has over 20 years of home service experience, and they've combined it with new tools to simplify the whole process. 
Bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie can handle the rest from start to finish or help you compare quotes from multiple pros and connect instantly, which means you can take care of just about any home project in just a few taps. Because when it comes to getting the most out of your home, you can do this when you Angie that. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Some homecomings aren't the most pleasant. For one professor, the lonesome farmhouse in the middle of the country, he doesn't go into willingly, but rather to prep it to sell to someone more interested in solitude. Of course, there are a few problems with it. Bad floors, damaged walls, and a recurring nightmare he just can't seem to shake. Without further ado, I present to you part one of... I come to the garden alone. See, on the portals, he's waiting and watching, watching for you and for me. Time is now fleeting, the moments are passing, passing from you and from me. Shadows are gathering, deathbeds are coming, coming for you and for me. Come home, come home, you who are weary. Come home. W. L. Thompson. Wednesday, July 17th. Dusk. The drive from Nashville, Tennessee to Gaston, Indiana was neither terribly long nor terribly boring, but it was terribly quiet. Passing through the steamy Appalachian foothills, he had no lack of scenery. Rolls of farmland on either side teeming with loping horses and ambling cattle, but it was also quiet and still. The interstate was desolate, even when he drove through Louisville, with the golden sun melting in the western sky, followed by the orange glow of the city lights and the muddy shadows of an urban twilight. He wanted to push through without stopping, and the smothering calm of the road taking him home piqued his determination to stay in motion until he had finished the journey. Truthfully, it was his own fault for starting out as late as he did. Seven in the evening, just in time to hit the hideous Nashville after work traffic. Now his focus was on pulling into Alexandria as soon as possible. It wasn't that he wanted to be there. He didn't. Or that he was expected by anyone. He wasn't. But he simply couldn't stand this heavy fog of silence. It was watchful and intelligent, and it was waiting to see what he would do and how he would atone. Grace had urged him to go. Someone needed to take care of the house. It had been his grandparents' home for half a century, and he himself had lived there at two critical periods in his life. The first was when he was four years old, and his dad had been laid off during the 1991 recession. 
His parents had stayed with his mom's folks for over a year. Two decades later, while he was getting his doctorate in social psychology at nearby Ball State, he lived in those same rooms for two years. Not long after he moved out, both of his grandparents died, suddenly and unexpectedly, in the same year. And their Victorian farmhouse, which he had called twice his home, was willed to his mother, and now she was dead. Grace hated that she couldn't go with him. He made enough money off of his website, YouTube channel, and book royalties that he could afford to cancel his summer classes. But she didn't, so he'd have to go alone while she taught intro to psych classes at TSU and worked on her dissertation. This trip would be very difficult for him. In one sense, he had loved his grandparents. They were good to their neighbors, showed up to school events, and had given him a clean, stable, rent-free home for those two years. There had always been a smoldering tension between them. He refused to downplay his distaste for their small-town mindset or his annoyance at their constant fixation on the past. Worst of all, surely, was the way he made his living. He was one of the fastest-growing names in the intellectual skeptic community, with a focus on urging his readers and followers to trade on unevolved faith in things like horoscopes, religion, the paranormal, and fate for the liberating gospel of uninfringed free will and unconditional self-love. He vigorously debated true believers of all kinds, astrologists and cryptozoologists, seers and psychics, Preachers and pundits, desperately urging the public to embrace the peace offered by a universe without an ultimate purpose or hidden destinies. It was an uncontaminated universe, where each individual could construct their own meaning and fashion their own interpretations of true reality. What he couldn't abide, however, was the way that those who clung to a lot of unscientific Medieval fairy tales about ghosts and gods held the rest of humanity back from self-actualization. It had become his crusade, and because of it, he'd become wealthy. His books, all bestsellers, had subtitles which promised to decode the psychological lies of the paranormal peddlers, deconstruct your mind and learn to love yourself more fully and deeply, and restore Western democracy to its secular roots. Although he'd only published one of these before his grandparents' deaths, a stinging critique called Pearls Before Swine, How World Religions Inhibit the Pursuit of True Self-Love, it was enough to become a wall between them. His professional focus on deconstructing the wish fulfillments and defense mechanisms of any and all kinds of faith seriously chafed his family members, each of whom was either devoutly religious, obsessed with cryptids, or enamored with astrology. He was the one force that unified his conservative Nazarene uncle, who was obsessed with aliens, and his gay hipster cousin, who married a psychic. Before she died, his grandma had continued to tell him that she loved him and had still sent him cards and letters, but when she finally passed, no one else in the family seemed to want him at the funeral. Other than his mother, 
he hadn't heard from any members of his extended family in seven years. He doubted if that would change. Pushing on into southern Indiana, he found himself the quiet being even more potent. The landscape leveled out as he neared Indianapolis, replacing the swelling hills and wooded hollows with wide stretches of fields, black with recent rain and bristling with spears of corn. The orange windows of distant farmhouses vigilantly watched his passage. He drove by two trucks on the side of the road, one giving the other a jump start, and the two drivers stood in silence with their arms crossed while they turned to watch him drive by. After he passed Pendleton, he realized that he was one of the only cars on the interstate that night. To his left, he saw the brown glow of a sleeping suburb. To his right were black swaths of slumbering farmland. Now he realized he was only 20 miles from his exit. What would his reaction be to seeing the house for the first time in seven years? Nostalgia or boredom? Or something worse? Would it be a significant reunion with a cherished memorial? Or a meaningless homage to a dead idol? Seven years since he'd been home. Seven years. And now he was the last one who could possibly decide what to do with his grandparents' house. He had no siblings, his mom's only brother was declining in a Florida nursing home, while his ex-wife lived in Oklahoma with her second husband. Of the three cousins, one had died of an Oxycontin overdose in 2016. One lived off the grid with his husband in Vermont, and was even less likely to ever come home again, and one had recently shot himself in his garage after losing his custody battle. There were no other adult blood relatives left. After his grandparents' death, his mom rented the place out for several years, but the last tenant had done incredible damage to it and had to be evicted. She boarded it up for repairs but never got around to paying for them, and it lay empty for four years. Now the old windows were boarded up and the mutilated rooms had been sleeping in four years of darkness with only the faint red crack of sunlight piercing through the creases between the plywood slabs. He passed the exits to Muncie and Anderson, continuing down the particularly dark and quiet stretch of Interstate 69 that led to exit 245. To find his grandparents' house, you'd need to turn off of this exit where the interstate crosses State Road 28 and then turn left to the west. You'll barely drive a quarter mile before you notice the burned-out shell of a farmhouse on your right, a ruin that caught fire five years ago but is yet to be demolished. And here you'll turn, right on North County Road 500 East, a pot-old stretch skulking between tall cornfields. In one mile, the road terminates at a three-way junction with West County Road 700 North, at which point you'll turn left you'll come into view of a white gothic revival farmhouse girded by a wraparound porch. It's just a few hundred yards away on the right side of the road. You immediately notice that it's uncomfortably crowded by enormous trees on three sides where it slumbers on the edge of a burly four-acre wood. There's something lovely about it, yes. Idyllic even, but also a sadness which is difficult to define. One might be excused for assuming that it was the site of some strange tragedy. 
And now here it was, the sign for exit 245, backlit by the Petro truck stop's green glow, standing guard at the intersection of Interstate 69 and State Road 28. His gray eyes narrowed into dark slits and he rubbed the knuckles of his left hand along his smooth jawline. As he slowed down to merge, he realized that in all his time on the road, he hadn't once thought about the specter that was most troubling him about the reunion. That was his dream. Not even Grace knew about it. He'd never mentioned it to his mother and had cunningly hidden it from each of his therapists, knowing full well that he was hiding it. It was a recurring nightmare that he'd first experienced when he was five years old, then again at intervals of several years, at the ages of 13, 18, 21, and 25. It came so rarely that it hadn't truly ever bothered him until the night that his mother died. This was for two reasons. Firstly, because he had had it just minutes before he got the phone call about her car accident. Secondly, because he'd noticed for the first time a change in its predictable script. But this was the last place he wanted to think about the dream. Just as he was flipping on his turn signal to leave the dozy orange glow of the interstate for the purple-black gloom of the countryside. He took the exit, made the left turn, and saw the blackened chimney with the burned-out house on his right. He imagined his grandparents' home as it must be right now, overshadowed by the tall trees pressing in against it, watching him from the two dark windows in the front gable, staring out of the white siding like sockets in a bleached skull. He had a spontaneity memory of driving down this road in late December, and from a distance, seeing the ranks of his grandpa's luminarius, encircling the whole house and blowing down either side of the driveway, illuminating it like a landing strip. These colorful lanterns were nothing more than old milk jugs, each fitted with a Christmas tree light bulb, which his grandpa had always set out on holidays, birthdays, and special occasions. When the corn was harvested and the fields were laid low, you could see their soft glow from two miles off, but today the crops would obscure everything until the last minute. He wondered, with a dry chuckle, what he would do if he turned the corner and saw their distant pinkish shine walking him home. No, he wasn't ready yet. Not tonight. He maintained his speed past the charred ruin and drove on down 28 towards Alexandria, where he knew he could find a room at the Budget Inn. Parked his rucksack and suitcase into the lobby, was given a key card, collapsed in the bed, and was swallowed in sleep. Was deep and long and dreamless. Thursday, July 18th, mid morning. By the time he woke, it was well after nine in the morning, he wasted no time in showering and hurrying off to find some breakfast. He realized that he hadn't texted or called Grace to let her know that he arrived safely. It was unlike him to forget to text her when he was traveling. Her parents had died in a highway accident while on vacation and he knew that this formality was one of his strictest pet peeves. As he rushed outside to his car, he balanced his phone between his ear and shoulder and tried to reach her, but he realized that she was in the middle of a class by now. So he left an apologetic voicemail and headed off to Rachel's Highway Cafe for a plate of eggs, hash browns, and sausage. 
For some reason, he felt incredibly hungry. And even though his typical breakfast consisted of a pair of cold Pop-Tarts washed down with almond milk, he felt as though he couldn't do anything else before he had eaten a large hot breakfast, and he knew that Rachel's would give it to him. He ordered the largest breakfast plate and a whole carafe of coffee, and before the waitress had even left the table, he began plunking into it. His stomach was icy with hunger, and relief radiated down his spine as the food warmed it. He was fully conscious that this freakish hunger was a defense mechanism, a self-employed trick to protect him from the devil knows what exactly, but it didn't stop him from eating everything on his plate and draining the carafe. It was about the house, of course. One side of him wanted to weigh the options thoughtfully, as if to honor his family's fate in history. But on the other side, there was only one option. Had his mom been there, this would have been more complicated, but she was dead, and he wanted nothing more than to be rid of the old house and everything, living, dead, or in between, that came with it. The options were simple, and they both began the same way. Open it back up and pay for some basic repairs. After this, he could either sell it or rent it out. He was massively in favor of selling. Either way, he needed to survey the damage to see whether he could manage it by himself or whether he needed to hire out a contractor. And this was his first task. He finished the last of the coffee, paid his bill. The hostess wished him a blessed day, to which he grinned back weakly, and hopped back into his car. Pulling out onto the highway, he drove east, back into the country, with mid-morning sun glaring warmly on his face. Looking back on the long weekends they'd spent there growing up, he was surprised to realize, as an adult, how much it had been like slipping back into a different century, although he hadn't known any better at the time. Of course, the house had running water and lights, but it had no air conditioning, no cable, and no furnace. In the winter, the downstairs was heated by an ironwood burning stove, and the upstairs was heated by a pair of radiators. In the summer, it was cooled by opening all of the windows, and most of the evenings were spent on the south-facing porch. And even though it had electricity, there were many nights when the dining room was only illuminated by a pair of hurricane lamps, which sent the acrid tang of kerosene curling through the air. Had he been a romantic, these memories of steamy summer nights spent on the porch with his family would have brought him bittersweet comfort. He may have seen it as a rare gift to have been a child growing up in the neon-colored commercialism of the 90s and yet to have enjoyed long winter evenings sitting beside a wood-burning stove while his family members shared jokes and legends. But he wasn't a romantic, and he hadn't enjoyed it. He'd resented the sweaty outside summers and stuffy indoor winters. His only pleasures there had been time spent alone, reading books, or more likely, spending hours upon hours prowling his grandparents' little woods. It would be time to kill at the campsite he made in the clearing at the center, and there he could play out his fantasies with his favorite family member, himself. Otherwise, it had always felt like stifling and forced. But now he had come back to it all, and 
bring it to some sort of final conclusion by delivering the coup de grace that none of his cousins had the energy or imagination to fire. A real adventure in which you would either play the hero or the villain. Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs projects done well. If you own a home, you know how much work it can take. Whether it's everyday maintenance and repairs or making dream projects a reality, it can be hard just to know where to start. But now, all you need to do is Angie that and find a skilled local pro who will deliver the quality and expertise you need. Angie has over 20 years of home service experience, and they've combined it with new tools to simplify the whole process. Bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie can handle the rest from start to finish or help you compare quotes from multiple pros and connect instantly, which means you can take care of just about any home project in just a few taps. Because when it comes to getting the most out of your home, you can do this when you Angie that. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well... That's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. He wasn't interested in improving the amenities. None of the families who'd lived there since 2006 had complained about the lack of heat or air conditioning. The six acres of land that the farmhouse sat on had apparently been sufficient to attract them, Four of those acres were, as previously mentioned, made up of dense woodland, which meant free heating, as long as you were willing to cut it. Window AC units had come with the house since it was first rented out and were still stored in the attic. All he needed to worry about was making sure that it was weather tight and clean. He was hoping that he could manage this by himself. As it grew closer, he remembered the dream again. It came as suddenly as if someone sitting beside him had begun humming a love song that he associated with a savage heartbreak. The reaction was instant and visceral. It was probably triggered by the thought of the AC units in the attic. The attic. Like most true dreams, its details were muddled up in a vague mist, but their rudiments were always the same. He is sleeping alone in the upstairs bedroom that shares the attic door, the house is shaded by tall trees, and at night the room is so dark that if you were to be suddenly woken up, you wouldn't immediately be sure of which way you were facing or where the door was. It must be taking place in the fall. There's no sounds, no frogs or cicadas or crickets, but it's still warm. Somewhere in the blackness, he hears the raspy clack of a handle turning and the tired creak of a door. It's either the bedroom door in front of him, the closet door to his right, or the attic door to his left. He knows instinctively that it's the attic door opening. A low, narrow door to a low, narrow room, unfinished and haggard, with heavy gray beams studded by rusty nails, and bare floor joists stuffed with pale yellow insulation, made navigable only by a series of boards nailed onto the joists to act as gangplanks. 
He'd always been so terrified of stepping off the boards and falling into the insulation. He wasn't sure where he'd go, but he knew that he'd be lost. And what was even in this attic? Bookshelves, tables, chests, bureaus, and trunks. All heavy and dark and closed up. Hiding things that he couldn't understand. Things connected to dead people he'd never met. But stories to which he couldn't relate, but which somehow were more a part of him than his own two hands. And from this dark, chilly cell, something is deciding to exit and join the world of the living. His world. He can never say what it is, but he hears the floor giving under its feet as it comes to examine his bed. He feels the mattress sagging to the left as it slithers in with him. He feels the covers rustle as it slides between them. With his left hand, he touches cold skin with fine hair on it, but no clothes. In spite of his deepest, most convicting misapprehensions, he slides a hand up what appears to be a shriveled human stomach, across a set of bony ribs, along a throat and jaw bristling with what his grandma called whiskers, and finally onto a face. It's the face of someone who's awake. Their expression concerns him. He feels clenched teeth, though he can't tell if they're clenched in pain or frown or a smile. He touches a gelatinous, unblinking eye. He doesn't dare turn the light on. He knows that this would be the worst thing, to see it and know what it is. So instead he bolts for the bedroom door handle that he instinctively knows his four quick strides from the right side of his bed. He rushes for it. Something rustles on the left side of the bed and is now coming towards him. He gains the door and tears toward the breakneck stairs. He passes his parents in their bed, but doesn't consider going to them. He crashes down the stairs and safely makes the hairpin turn out of the stairwell into the dining room below, which is dimly illuminated by two oil lamps. He runs past the door to his grandparents' bedroom. He doesn't think to knock on their door. A cheerful song is being rung out from the dry lungs of the old organ behind him, but he doesn't dare turn around to see who's playing. In the living room, he sees sleeping forms bundled up on the couches and slumped into chairs. His cousins must be spending the night. He jumps over two of them in pursuit of the front door. He must get out. He's heard the steps crashing behind him, thin nude feet slapping on the hardwood floors, knows that his only hope is to make it to the safe center of the wood of his grandparents' property. His campsite is hemmed in by soaring ash trees and fat beaches. He must make it there if he's to find protection, far from his family, far from their past-obsessed lives and their stories of dead great-aunts and great-grandparents, of people his own mother never met. He immediately thinks of his mother's cousin Jerry, the thirteen-year-old who was messing with a cow in a shameful manner, and of how he got its halter tangled around his throat, how he was strangled by the cow who dragged him for a mile into a neighbor's field, and how the newspapers had said that he died falling from a treehouse. He must run far from this frozen world of dying relatives and their dead gods. 
He knew that if he found the heart of the wood, he'd be safe. He would live. And just as he leapt from the porch, felt his feet crunch into the leaf-covered grass and raised his eyes to the black mound of trees, silhouetted by a purple sky flecked with flickering stars, and he awoke. And this has been his dream. At five, the week after they moved from the house to a place of their own. At thirteen, cousin Jerry's age when he was strangled by the cow halter. At eighteen, when he first left for college. Twenty-one, when he decided on his career. And at twenty-five, the week before his grandmother passed away. And then there was the most recent one, now that he was thirty-three and his mother had died. But this time, this time it was different, he thought to himself. He drove by a derelict barn in an overgrown field, curiously noting a great black rent in its splintered gray face, like the dead socket of a once all-seeing eye. Just up ahead, he saw the old ruins blackened chimney jutting like a signpost with the wide morning sun hovering directly over it, as if it had been speared on its jagged masonry. He obediently turned left, where he was engulfed on either side, by cornfields. It was already late July, and the season had been a very wet and warm one. As a result, the cornstalks were well over six feet tall, and obscured what would otherwise have been an immediate view of his destination. As it was, he had to wait to make the turn on West County Road 700 North before he could catch his first glimpse of it. He continued down the green corridor, hemmed in by barbed wire fences, and bordered by ditches full with dark, foamy water, which steamed off as the sun climbed higher and burned hotter. Here was the turn, and with a sigh of relief, he caught his first glimpse of the house watching him from beneath the shade of the massive oak tree. He smiled to himself. Here, in all of this white heat, under the glaring watchfulness of a July sun, the foreboding illusion was shattered. This was no ancient family manor, or a grim country seat isolated in a rain-flogged moor. It was a simple eight-room farmhouse dozing comfortably in the season of its retirement. It came with no curses, no dangers, and no appetites. Best of all, it came with no occupants, just the basic responsibility, the memory of his mother who loved it, the grandparents who had lived and died there, doing it justice and selling it for a decent price. They would easily be able to cash flow up to 8000 in repairs without putting a dent in his August living expenses, and if need be, he could easily finance a further 50000 or so. He would just need to make an assessment, plot out the repairs, and hope to have it all wrapped up and on the market by September. The farmhouse was, as been said, a Victorian Gothic revival. It had been built in 1893 and had conventions of the era. You will immediately notice its tall, steeply-pitched gables, narrow, church-like windows, and the wraparound porch, ornamented with lacy, hand-curved gingerbread woodwork. You'll see that the front yard is dominated by a gargantuan oak tree, taller than the house itself. On one side is a vast 1980s pole barn garage, and walk around and behind it, and 
you'll probably see. Three shabby outbuildings, gray barn with great black gashes torn in the dry wood, a rusted storage shed tucked away amongst a projective grove of hickory trees, and a long, sagging chicken coop, punctured by small black windows. Behind these, tucked away in the far northeast corner, you'll find a shaggy orchard of apple and pear trees whose low-hanging branches are already heavy with the swelling fruit. It'll be understandable if you eye one of these, and although they are sweetest in September, they will be delicious if you decide to pluck one and eat it as you return to the house, crossing through a long stretch of grassland, occasionally broken up by the grapevines and berry bushes. As you pass the house and move toward the far side of the property, you'll see that the entire western half is dominated by a dense wood to which you'll most likely feel a strange aversion. If you do want to explore it, however, you'll find that it is scored through, east to west, by one long trail that bulges in the middle in a wide clearing, the grandchildren's old campsite, which is at the woods' geometric center. You'll find it darkened by the restless canopies of beeches and ash trees, and its ground treacherously tangled by wild vines and briar patches, You'll be unlikely to spend much time in it. Taken as a whole, the property nurtures a ponderous atmosphere of peace and sorrow and dread. After pulling into the driveway, he didn't waste any time looking at the scenery, but went directly to the front porch and began examining the boards on the windows. These were now bowed and weather-stained. Removing them would be his first task. The porch was in good order, at any rate, without any signs of rot, and although the front yard was wildly overgrown, he saw nothing out of place or worthy of concern. Walking around the sides was equally revealing, and other than some damage to the chimney piece, presumably from lightning based on a white scorch scarring the pink bricks, and an uprooted papaw tree. The back was also in good order. But now he had to steal himself the interior. Whatever awaited him in there would be infinitely more complicated. He remembered the conversation with his mother as she tearfully described the damage done by the last tenants and mentally opened up a calculator for damage assessment. He reached into his pocket and pulled out the brass key from his mother's safety deposit box and climbed back onto the porch. After a moment's hesitation... He inserted it into the storm door and felt it roll snugly through the pin tumblers. He pictured the dark interior and wondered if he was being foolhardy for rushing into it without someone else there to accompany him. And yet he didn't feel alone at all. He imagined himself spotting something low and hunched waddle across the floor and scurry into a dark corner from which to watch him. A wild animal, a coyote... Something with... He shook his head and looked back at the aquamarine sky, where the sparrows flitted over rustling cornfields. Now, no animals will be inside. How would they have gotten in? But what if they had never left? What if he was letting them out? He clenched his face. An odd, stupid thought. He wrenched the key home, gripped the knob, and, with a bitter shove, forced the door open. 
he was immediately hit by the earthy stench of dust, and perhaps something else, but was more overcome by the taste that it left in his mouth, sour and moldy. He could see nothing beyond the few spots where the sunlight spilled through the door. He stepped forward gingerly. There was the carpet, and it felt as though the floor was solid. Another step. Now his eyes were acclimating to the artificial dusk, and he began to see the room come together in dense brown shapes. By another sheet of sunlight coming through the front door, the room was illuminated, as he had earlier imagined, by amber slits of light coming between the creases between the plywood. These glinted wakefully at him from the far side of the dining room, and all along the walls of the living room in which he now stood. These shafts of feeble light were animated by the thousands of golden dust mites which hovered in the air around him like sugar crystals stirred up in a glass of sweet tea, rising in wispy flurries with each step he made before sinking back down, as though returning to an interrupted dream. The sight and taste of these dry blizzards revolted him, and he decided that he must have these boards taken down and the windows thrown open as soon as possible. The noxious dust must be cleared out, and the air cleaned before anything else could be done. Without glancing to either side, he rushed outside to his car, where he had a cordless screw gun and a pry bar. After two minutes in the house, the air outside was delicious to his lungs, and he gulped it up in spite of its mugginess. Now, now he, he couldn't get a single thing accomplished, until those boards were down and the windows had been left open to air the place out. One hour's work was all it took to draw the screws from the 13 windows on the lower story, and once the slabs of plywood were all leaned up neatly against the garage, he felt comfortable going back inside to open the sashes. This time, as he moved from window to window to window, he once again felt the self-deprecating relief from when he had caught sight of the house for the first time, the shattering of an illusion. It reminded him of the time as a child when he had run screaming to his mother in terror of a monster, not unlike the monster from his dream, a monster in the attic, a monster that had turned out to be a dress form covered by a fur coat. He'd found it in his very house up in the attic, with its unfurnished beams and flickering lights. They journeyed back upstairs together to corner the huge furry thing, only for his face to burn with embarrassment when she pulled back the coat and spun the dress form around with a stifled laugh. How much like that same five-year-old child had he just been? And yet, the removal of the plywood truly made a difference. Clean, warm light gushed into each room, burning away the damp and eating up the shadows. This didn't fix the smell or the palpable taste of silent years, though. For this, he still needed to open each window using the crowbar when necessary to let out the sour atmosphere. Muggy as the outside air was, its hot breath stirred about the rooms, bringing with it the clean odors of warm grass and cornstalks. With these changes, he felt capable of assessing the downstairs carpet he warranted was spoiled, encrusted and discolored with animal waste, from the last family's dogs, he supposed, although he had heard that they were outside dogs, 
they needed to be replaced at once. The damage done to the walls was indeed serious and infuriating, but it would be quick work to repair with one or two others. The windows were all in good shape, the plumbing appeared to be sound, and the stove seemed fine, although he would burn a chimney sweeper log into that very night to burn out whatever might be living in it. The water, gas, and electricity would all be turned back on by the afternoon. As for the repairs, he would definitely need at least two other people to help, ideally a professional contractor. He was repeating all of these findings to Grace when she called him back during her lunch break. Didn't you say that your thesis advisor became a contractor when he retired? Yeah, that's right. Dr. Demian was a residential carpenter before he went into academia. His brother is the one with the contracting business, but I think he became his brother's partner after he left Ball State. So you'll reach out to him today? Uh, no doubt, yeah. I'll, I'll message him as soon as we wrap up. He did, and as it turned out, Dr. Virgil Demian was indeed a partner in his brother's contracting business. Demian wrote back to his former student within an hour and agreed to come over in the morning with one of his young assistants. In the meantime, after locking up, he drove over to the Petro truck stop where there was an iron skillet restaurant. There he had a heavy lunch of mashed potatoes, turkey gravy, and fried chicken, washing it all down, two glasses of lemonade. He savored the second one as he sat by a window and watched the cars cross the nearby overpass. They seemed to drive at frantic speeds, rushing up, plunging down the other side of this hump and road like desperados, leaping over stone walls, barely glancing behind, to gauge how long it would be before the posse finally caught up to them. He finished the lemonade and paid his bill before heading back into the summer heat. The sun was at its peak of power now. The air over the highway smoldered and curled, and the humid air so muffled the ratcheting chants of nearby cicadas that they seemed to come from a distant room. He slid in his car and drove the mile or so back to his house. His grandparents' house, he had to correct himself. Once again, as it rose into sight, he felt the psychological defenses melt away in the heat. It was just a building and one which he could profit from, a property to be tidied up and sold off. Having inspected the downstairs, he now knew that he must explore the upstairs. This would have been an even stranger feeling he knew, because it was this suite of rooms in which he had lived, first as a child and later as a grad student. During those last two years, he'd slipped down the stairs in the morning say goodbye to his grandma without pausing to share the breakfast she always offered him, speed off to Muncie and spend between nine and twelve hours on campus before returning, usually well after dark, in time to reheat the meal that his grandma had made him. After supper, though, he was quick to slip back upstairs and spend his evenings poring over textbooks and homework. The door to the stairs was in a large, high-ceiling dining room, right beside the antique organ, which had been left in the house after his grandparents' death because it was too big to move. The door opened to a dangerous set of stairs and almost immediately made a sharp turn around the corner and ran steeply up the upstairs suite, a large landing or sitting room, 
with a comfortable old bedroom off to the right and a narrow children's bedroom straight ahead. He used these rooms as an office, bedroom, and storage space, respectively. He wondered what damage had been done there, and without a pause, he opened the door and started up the stairs. He immediately turned the sharp corner and gripped the stair rail, which he noticed was perilously loose. Up ahead, he could dimly make out the dark brown shapes of the sitting room, and by the time he came to the top of the landing, he recognized the open door, straight ahead, to the children's bedroom, and the closed door, just off to the right, to his old bedroom. The light was even darker here because most of the windows gazed into the foliage of the great oak tree, and any sunlight coming through it was heavily filtered by the shaggy leaves and twisted branches. Relying on the silver gleam of his cell phone flashlight, he confirmed that while the rooms were not in excellent shape, there was nothing that a cleaning detail and some basic carpentry couldn't fix. Then he moved on to the bedroom. He turned the handle and opened the door to the room where his mother had grown up, where he and his parents had recovered, and where he had slept and studied by himself tried to shine the flashlight around it, but it seemed even darker than the rooms facing the oak tree. The murk appeared to leach power from the white beam, and although he could recognize the room's individual parts, the bookshelves where he'd kept his novels and DVDs, the bed where he had slept and studied, the closet where he'd hidden gin bottles, the back wall where he'd hung a Casper David Fiedrich print, they struggled to coalesce into a manageable hole. And there was the open door to the attic, small and dark like a weather-stained tombstone. The smell was different up here, too. Damper, moldier, tangy and sour. He passed the light over the back corner and dropped the phone. For a ludicrous moment, just the flash of a moment, he thought he'd seen the figure of a person sitting on the edge of the bed and facing the wall, slumped over in heavy grief. Or was it in repressed laughter? He knew that it was impossible, so he didn't breathlessly scramble for the phone out of fear, so much as he did to make sure that he didn't become disoriented in the dark and accidentally fall down those breakneck stairs. He recovered the phone, and, much to his shame, he immediately shined its light into the far back corner. It was a large, white-bodied pillow sloping over the side. This answered the question that his brain had been screaming, and he quickly turned and clambered down the stairs and back into the light. He must air out the upstairs, too, but tomorrow. He'd wait for tomorrow. Friday, July 19th. Sunrise. The morning saw him rise with the sun, eager to get back to the work he'd started the day before. Upon returning, he unlocked the garage and gassed up his grandpa's old cub cadet riding mower. It took him just two hours to hew away four years worth of overgrown grass in the front and side yards. Spent another hour mowing paths through the backyard and toward the woods and chicken coop before calling it quits, with the wet shanks of green and yellow grass laying steaming in heaps on the ground. He'd left the windows open to air overnight. If any thieves wanted to try their luck in the derelict, they were welcome to it. And by the time he opened the front door, the house was flooded with the sharp, clean fragrance of 
new mown grass. The next thing to tackle, he decided, was the carpet, and he immediately got to it. He was half-finished with prying up the trim and peeling back slabs of stained carpet when Dr. Demian and his assistant pulled up in a rusted silver truck. The old man had changed very little since the last time he'd seen him, seven years ago. He was a rough-cut, broad-shouldered fellow with a sharply defined silver beard and cropped iron-colored hair. His eyes were a shadowless blue, and his cheeks and nose were brown from the sun. In his flannel shirt and denim, he cut a slightly different figure from the Tweedy professor, but it was still Dr. Demian. He swung out the driver's seat like a 35-year-old and smiled crookedly at his old student. Good to see you, Holler. Better to see you, Dr. Demian. Thanks so much for coming on short notice. And they shook hands warmly. Like I said over the phone, you were the first person I thought of. He lied with a tight mouth. Well, that's just fine. And you can call me Virgil from now on, by the way. Let's take a look at the place. Oh, and this is my best guy, Pablo Osorio. Pablo, this is Holler. Like I said, he was a student of mine once and is now something of a celebrity in his field. Pablo had quiet dark eyes and a serious watchful face. Or at least he did at the moment, for as soon as he exited the truck, he seemed clenched and nervous. He smiled professionally and turned to the truck bed, where he pulled out two plastic buckets filled with tools. Celebrity's a bit much, but I'm certainly loving my work. And it's paid off. I've read all of your books, you know. You've done a good job, all in all. And I'm not surprised that your readership rewards you. Holler's forehead puckered at those words, but he nodded appreciatively and showed them inside. It's certainly not important to detail everything they said or saw, least of all what Demian decided needed to be changed or how it should be done. In short, they agreed to an upfront fee and Demian estimated that the critical work would take less than four weeks between the three of them, with two apprentices and a joiner needing to make the occasional appearance. Pablo's expertise was in foundations and structural integrity, so we left them after the initial assessment to explore more of the house by himself. Meanwhile, Demian and his former student walked to the back of the house and waited for breakfast to be delivered from Rachel's Highway Café. They caught up on each other's personal lives. Demian had married off two of his three daughters, had welcomed three grandchildren into the world, was writing a spy novel, and was tasked with organizing fishing trips with his retired colleagues each summer. And they discussed national politics, baseball, and Netflix series. He'd forgotten how much he loved the old man, and how relaxing it was to have these sorts of rollicking conversations. Most of his friends in Nashville were focused on their careers and the literature, culture, and fashions that were directly tied to their areas of expertise. But Demian was flexible and open-chested, easily yawning between favorite barbecue restaurants, most underrated classical composers, and laughably obvious solutions to the country's social problems. A car from Rachel's pulled up, and the two men came up to the delivery and brought the food back to the porch. Pablo quietly appeared in time to grab a quick coffee, but his wife had already made him a hot breakfast, and he 
returned to his study of the house. Demian leaned back and drank deeply from the iced coffee before looking out over the fields, where a stately hawk was making a smooth, ascending circle between the glinting green of the cornstalks and the searing blue skies. It's a good view. It must have been soothing to kick back here and let your mind breathe when you weren't stuck in my classes. I'd have rather been with you. I didn't spend much time out here on the porch when we lived here. Mostly I was upstairs. Sometimes I'd go for walks in the woods, though. It's a decent little wood by the looks of it. Ash and beech, it seems. And some white oak and papas. Hickories, too. But yes, mostly ashes and beech. It's quiet there. I used to spend most of my days there when my parents would bring me up this way. A great place to be a little boy. Demian's eyebrows pinched, and he looked intently at the green, dark mass. He nodded his head three times, slowly, as if he was deeply considering that last comment. What do you think of this place now? Selling it, for sure? Uh, no question about it. My life's in Nashville. With Grace? And my work is there. You can write anywhere. I thought you said that you were going to give up teaching once you felt comfortable with it. Why not now? He swirled the ice in his coffee and looked down at the porch floor. I'm not quite there yet. Besides, I enjoy teaching. Or at least the faculty culture. I like the conferences and the symposiums and senate meetings. I'd rather spend an afternoon in a faculty lounge working on next year's curriculum than out here on a porch in corn country. But that's just me. Yes. Demian smiled, patting him on the back. That's you. You've always put work before pleasure. The results are undeniable, though. I heard you on Rogan last year and saw that your last two books made the New York Times bestseller list. Someone told me that you're going to debate Tim Keller in November. Yeah, in Philadelphia. I'm trying to get a debate set up with Crowder, but that might all be a waste of time. I don't know if I want to feed into that sort of foolishness. But I am definitely filling out a panel with Sam Harris, Ayan Hirsi Ali, and Daniel Dennett from the Secular Student Alliance next February. I'll let you know when you can get tickets if you're interested in coming. I think it's supposed to be in Evanston. Demian smiled and nodded and looked back up at the wood. It was creased with shadows that moved restlessly with the wind, but the trunks of the trees stood firm and inflexible, like iron posts submerged in a frozen lake. Well, I'd appreciate that. Busy as ever, Holler. I know you don't exactly share all my beliefs, he said quietly, sincerely. You are perhaps a bit less closed off to those ideas than I am, but eh, you don't have to share beliefs to listen. And I enjoy listening to you. It's important to you that things be seen objectively. It seems to me that you study what you study and write what you write because you don't want to see people given false hopes. You don't think it's always false hope, though, do you? The soul? Yeah. The, uh, the existence of something immortal. After death, that is. I have lots of thoughts on that, and better yet... I've heard and listened to lots of thoughts on that. My conclusion that hope is powerful. So is delusion. My family was deluded. 
They believed in all kinds of stuff. But where are they now? Riding in coffins, filling up urns. It's ridiculous what kind of life some people will let themselves lead if they're that deluded. What kind of lives did they lead? He wrenched his mouth to one side and his eyes swam wetly around in their sockets. Quiet lives, small lives. Never leaving this town, never wanting anything else, never asking for more. You think they wanted more? How could you not? How could you not look around at this sort of puny, wilting life and not wonder if there's something more out there for you? Based on what you've said about them, I think they did just that. I think they hoped for more. And I think you have more in common with them than you thought. Good things, too. He stared out into the grass at the base of the wood. In the shadow of the trees, he watched something pale-colored. Well, he didn't know exactly what he watched or what it was doing, but it was gone now. Demian looked over at him sadly. He slapped a hand on his knee. Well, break's over. Let's get the rest of that carpet up and get the scrapers out of the truck. Five hours later, the floors were bare and clean, soaking in mineral spirits and picked clean of staples. Pablo had helped with most of it. He was largely quiet, but no longer seemed to care for going off by himself. He stayed close to Demian, or else spent his time outside, close to the road and always in the sun. From time to time, he would gaze watchfully at certain areas, the seat in front of the old pipe organ, the doorway leading to the staircase, the bathroom off the kitchen. Once he stared mutely at the kitchen sink while his chest perceptibly rose and fell. He wouldn't stop or slow what he was doing, but he would look up at these things slowly without turning his head and then sharply pivot back at his work. Demian noticed this but said nothing about it. If there was something that Pablo didn't like, he'd tell him. Towards the end of the day before they headed out, and while his former student was dragging a load of the old carpet up to the dumpster he'd rented, Demian asked for a report on the foundation. He hadn't mentioned anything about it, so I'm assuming it's in good shape. Nothing to worry about. Pablo didn't meet his glance. His eyes were calmly fixed on the stairwell. The lights were off in the house, and with the sun beginning to set, Demian could only see a bank of dark blue shadow. Nothing expensive, some minor concerns, and some strange things. Some very strange things. With the foundation? This too, yes. With the foundation, too. Like what? Pablo looked away from the stairwell and moved toward the porch. Tunnels. There are tunnels dug all through the call spaces. By moles? Woodchucks? Pablo shook his head mournfully. Size of a man. The size of a man burrowing under the ground. I do not know why he burrows or where he is now. But they need filling in. If he's not able to burrow under the house, though, if we fill it in, I think, I think we'll have trouble. Demian also looked out at the porch, and after a moment's pause, he moved toward the door. Pablo was close behind. He knelt on the ground and crawled under the porch with a flashlight in his mouth. There in the musk, he saw what Pablo meant. 
He also smelled something loathsome and sour. It was coming from the tunnels, a series of round holes, each approximately two and a half feet wide, which seemed to have been bored into wet mud over the course of years. It looked as if they'd been patiently dug by hand, and by shining his light down them, he saw that they sloped downward and seemed to bend under the house's foundation. What in God's name had made them, or why, was an impossible mystery, but he didn't need to deal with that today. The time would come, though, when it would be unavoidable. We'll fill it in, have Luke and Matt come out here tomorrow. They can help you fill these in. No one goes under here by themselves, though. You understand? And no one goes inside any tunnel. Pablo nodded weakly. We'll bring gravel. The gravel will allow for water flow, but we'll bring stability. Sound good? Pablo glanced at him warily. I don't think so, boss. It ain't a right kind of thing. I don't like this nest. I think we use cement on this one. Stop it up and keep Nuhal. It, whatever it is, keep it out. Demian's expression didn't change. He nodded back and twisted his mouth. Good, good. He looked up and over to the east where the woods were growing darker and, or so it seemed, taller. Let's wrap this up for today and head out. Are you doing okay out there, bud? Pablo looked Demian in the eyes. It'll be good to be done with this day, but I'll be fine once we pull out of here. So let's go now if you're ready. Demian looked back at the house one more time. The strange sour odor was still in his nostrils. Let's split. I'll debrief Holler, and you can load up the power tools. I didn't realize it had gotten so dark so soon. After some parting words and handshakes, Demian and Pablo climbed into the truck and backed out of the driveway before disappearing around the bend with the red gleam of the setting sun flashing on its silver skin. Now that they were gone, he was left with the interstate's distant shushing hum and the throbbing burr of cicadas. It was quiet again. He focused, determinedly, on the ambient noises coming from cars he couldn't see, and insects knit invisibly into the very fabric of the landscape and decided to return to mowing. So far, he'd cut paths to the outbuildings. Now he wanted to cut one from the western side yard to the woods. He climbed onto the Cub Cadet, turned its engine, and rumbled from the garage across the front lawn and around the side of the house, aiming its prow at the silent sheaves of grass guarding the way to the path of the campsite. How many times, how many hundreds of times, had he stolen away from family gatherings to tramp through those woods and embalm himself in the ever-changing adventures of his restless mind? Was it Robin Hood's Sherwood Forest, or Tom Sawyer's Jackson Island, the Battle of Chancerville, or the Battle of Argonne Forest? Was he leather-stocking, escorting the Monroe sisters to Fort William Henry, or Ichabod Crane? walking carefully through the sleepy hollow woods. And the campsite. What was it today? Greenwood, where the merry men practiced their archery, or the clearing where Rip Van Winkle rolled nine pins with Henry Hudson and his ghostly crew. 
was at a fur trader's base, or the cemetery, where Tom and Huck saw Injun Joe drive his bowie knife through Doc Robinson's heart. All that blood. He realized that his best memories of his family never took place with them at all. They were here, here in the quiet core of this wooded escape, these four acres of Neverland. Rounding the corner of the house, he was eager to see it rise before his eyes. The sun was setting, as always, behind the wood. Flaming orange and red burned around its edges, piercing through gaps in the upper foliage. But from the tops of the trees to the roots, a solid black wall glowered in the twilight. He hadn't realized how late it had gotten, and immediately realized that he wouldn't be able to mow his way down the overgrown path to the campsite, but decided to try at least carve a route up to the entrance. He engaged the Cub Cadet's headlights and drove into the swishing waves of grass, aimed at the most opaque part of the wood where the black, pyramid-shaped egress once gaped. Now, as he neared it, it was clear that the opening had become obscured by high grass and saplings, but at the mere sight of it, he decided to power through and see how far he could get. As soon as he resolved to do this, however, he started to encounter a fierce local resistance. First, his shirt snagged on something sharp, a tall thistle, maybe. Then his face was slashed by the low-hanging brow of a branch of some nearby tree, he thought. Immediately after, something cut his right elbow. Then some fallen branch must have snagged the cuff of his jeans, something firm and heavy because it was pulling on his pant leg, holding him back. His leg wouldn't wrench loose from this obstruction, and it nearly pulled him off into the brambles. So he cut the grass, whatever it caught him was pulling him off the seat. He twisted his ankle back and forth to free it, but on examining it with his flashlight, he could find no explanation and saw that he could move it freely. Irritated, he pulled his foot up, slammed it back down on the gas. Looking around him, though, he saw that the shadows had deepened so that the night sky blended almost seamlessly into the edges of the trees. He felt cold and uncomfortable, being surrounded by all of this tall grass. What, after all, might be in it? Rambles and branches and logs, for one thing, dangerously hard to see in this little light. And then perhaps there were other things, moving things. He looked back at the house. He left the light on in the dining room, and it glowed cozily through the purple twilight. Enticed, he swung the wheel hard to port and headed back, after one final glance back at the wood, like a nervous suitor who hasn't mustered the courage to knock on the door. It was late now, and he was too tired to return to Alexandria. After all, he was eventually going to need to start staying at the house, unless he wanted to spend all his spare cash on motel rooms and bad continental breakfasts. The very thought of breakfast made his stomach growl. He was hungry again, but even more exhausted. Hungry for sleep, he flipped off the lamps and headed upstairs. He left a small nightlight on. His grandparents had always kept one, lit in every room because the country got so extremely dark and it burned behind him, pink and clean. Ascending into the darkness of the upstairs, he instinctively headed to his old bedroom, slid out of his clothes, and collapsed into his old bed. The bare mattress smelled of dust and stale air, but he fell asleep almost immediately. 
wasn't sure how long he'd been asleep before he was awoken by another smell. Kerosene. A sweet, acrid incense, strangely funereal, like curls of myrrh smoldering of a censer. It was the smell of his grandparents' antique hurricane lamps. And somehow he knew that that's exactly what it was. Not the early stench of a kerosene fire, or the metallic breath of spilled oil, but the warm, assertive odor of a controlled burn. It was as if someone had lit one or two hurricane lamps downstairs. They must have been burning for over an hour now, he thought, because the odor wasn't a faint whiff from downstairs, but it already comfortably permeated the upstairs. But it was all impossible. The hurricane lamps were in the cabinets in the mudroom, unused since his grandparents' death, and there was no kerosene in the house as far as he knew. And yet, as he sniffed again, fully awake now and then again, there was no question that the odor was coming from downstairs. He grabbed a claw hammer from a bucket of tools in the hallway, quietly headed down the stairs. The door was open to the dining room, washing the stairwell in light. What he saw wasn't the pink glow of nightlight blushing, but the dim glimmer of pulsing lamplight. He clutched the hammer tightly and gripped the handrail for support as he tried to ease his way downstairs without making much noise. He would surprise whoever was there. But wait, what was that? He thought he heard something on the top step behind him. He spun around to examine the dark landing and thought just for a moment that something pale moved or slid backward into the folds of shadow. He faced forward. The stairwell was now gently brushed in cool pink light. Confused but emboldened, he rushed down the stairs, still clenching the hammer. Everything was in place. No lamps were out, no tools moved, no chairs so much as adjusted from where he left them. He felt the impulse to turn on the overhead lights, but immediately and instinctively suppressed it for reasons which eluded him. Instead, he stomped through the kitchen and around the corner into the mudroom. With a strange fury, he threw open the cupboard where he knew the lamps were and stared at them. Glass fogged by dust, fonts dry, wicks parched and rotten. Picked up one by the grip under the bowl. Looking down, he saw a dark circle where the dust of years hadn't reached. He examined the font closely, unquestionably empty. He set it back down and stared at it. Then he reached out to wipe a cautious finger through the gray dust on the glass chimney. He jumped back in horror. The glass was searing hot, and his finger throbbed from what certainly felt like a burn. He looked up. He saw the dark smudge where his finger had rested. Very, very carefully, he tried it one more time. It was no warmer than any bowl or tumbler in a long-neglected cupboard. But he had been burned. He blinked and rubbed his face and stared anxiously at the lamp. Enough! Enough! He slammed the door and clomped through the kitchen, waving off her gentle attempts to coax him and adjoining her at the sink. Yes, his finger hurt, but he didn't need any of her smelling ointments. It was just a psychosomatic pain anyway. 
embarrassed and aggravated, slunk back up the stairs and collapsed into the mattress. He fell asleep without much difficulty, but all the time his nostrils puckered at the oily scent that still hovered in the room like a silent, shuffling crowd. I hope you enjoyed the first part of I Come to the Garden Alone by M. Grant Kellermeyer, as performed by yours truly. While we unfortunately must come to an end of the tale here for the time being, don't worry. Tune in to next week's episode to hear the final part of this trip into the recesses of the dark. If you've enjoyed what you've heard tonight, I'd like to remind you one last time that tonight's featured author can be found by visiting our website. Just visit simplyscarypodcast.com slash Kellermeyer. That's simplyscarypodcast.com slash K-E-L-L-E-R-M-E-Y-E-R. I sincerely hope that should you have been enthralled with the portion of the tales heard tonight, this occasion will be an opportunity to share longer-form horror with you, my dear listeners. As a reminder, if you decide to give tonight's talented author his stories a read, please consider leaving him a quality review and a kind word or a thoughtful public comment and an upvote. Be sure to let him know you heard about him here on this program that Otis Jiry sent It means more to me than you can imagine, and I'm sure he would much appreciate it as well. Thanks again for your support of this show and of tonight's featured author. Now, before we go, I'd also like to take a moment to thank you personally for joining me for this episode of Scary Stories Told in the Dark. If you enjoyed what you've heard on today's program, please take a moment to stop by our iTunes page, or wherever else you listen to your favorite podcasts, and leave us a five-star review and a kind word. It makes a huge difference and would mean a lot to us. If you'd like to hear a premium extended edition of tonight's and all of our other episodes featuring twice the terror, visit simplyscarypodcast.com today and click the patrons link in the menu at the top of the screen. You'll find yourself at chillingtalesfordarknights.com where you can purchase season passes for this podcast and our other quality storytelling programs. Or become a patron for as little as five bucks a month. Get access to our entire audio archive dating back to 2012, all of it ad-free. If you happen to use Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, or YouTube, you can follow and subscribe to Chilling Tales for Dark Nights there, where you'll get all of our latest updates and new releases have the chance to interact with us each and every week. You can subscribe to me on YouTube as well at the Otis Jerry channel, where you'll find releases of my series, Horror Storytime, dating back to 2014. And you can find me on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, too. Just search for Otis Jerry. Until next week, stay spooky and get some sleep, if you can. <laughs> Thanks for listening. You've been listening to Scary Stories Told in the Dark, a production of Chilling Entertainment and the creative team at Chilling Tales for Dark Nights, and a proud member of the Simply Scary Podcasts Network. 
Visit simplyscarypodcast.com today to learn more about our network and our other amazing storytelling programs. Tonight's program was hosted and its featured stories performed by yours truly, Otis Jiry. Selected stories have been adapted with the kind permission of their respective authors. Original music provided by Luke Hodgkinson and Jesse Cornett. Sound design and final mixing and mastering provided by executive producer and director Craig Groshek. Program's artwork and logo by David Romero. If you're looking for some fresh tales on a daily basis while waiting for the next podcast, check out my YouTube channel, the Otis Jiry channel, and my extensive collection of narrated tales there. Simply search on YouTube by my name and you'll find me. And don't forget to subscribe and press the bell notification icon to get my latest releases. Got a scary tale of your own that you'd like performed? I take submissions. Email it to me today at otis at simplyscarypodcast.com to have your terrifying tome considered for production in a future episode of this show. That's O-T-I-S at simplyscarypodcast.com. If you've enjoyed what you heard on tonight's program and are joining us on your favorite podcast app, subscribe to us to be sure you never miss an episode and leave a five-star review and a comment. Your feedback means a lot to me. You can also follow Chilling Tales for Dark Nights and yours truly on Facebook to connect anytime and get the latest updates on this and other programs and my channel. If you're listening on the Chilling Tales for Dark Nights YouTube channel, do us a favor and hit the subscribe button and the bell notification icon for CTFDN as well to get more spooky tales from me and the crew and another episode of this program each and every Wednesday. And don't forget to hit that thumbs up button to tell us how we're doing and leave a kind word or a request. And don't forget to visit us at ChillingTalesForDarkNights.com and consider supporting the team by becoming a patron. In addition to helping us out, you'll get exclusive access to our audio archive and ad-free downloads of all your favorite stories, including those you've heard on this program. As for me, I'll be back next Wednesday with more terrifying tales to keep you up all night. But that's all right. Who needs sleep anyway? <laughs> Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs projects done well. If you own a home, you know how much work it can take, whether it's everyday maintenance and repairs or making dream projects a reality. It can be hard just to know where to start, but now all you need to do is Angie that and find a skilled local pro who will deliver the quality and expertise you need. Angie has over 20 years of home service experience and they've combined it with new tools to simplify the whole process. Bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie can handle the rest from start to finish or help you compare quotes from multiple pros and connect instantly, which means you can take care of just about any home project in just a few taps. Because when it comes to getting the most out of your home, you can do this when you Angie that. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com.